So um, I preached in Advent at New Hope 23 years ago, and I was about nine months pregnant. So preaching about the coming of a baby when you are just great with child, it was amazing. Um, <laughs> this is better. <laughs> Much better. But it is really delightful to be here. It's always great to come back and see old friends and see new faces and um, know that the body of Christ is always the body of Christ, that we're all in this together. It's wonderful. So I think Advent is a time that calls us to look right in the face of all the darkness and pain of this world and even into the depths of our own brokenness. And affirm again that hope is the right stance. We hang on to the belief that God will not leave us alone, no matter how it feels in any given moment of our lives. That's Emmanuel. And that's why this hymn that we just sang persists. In fact, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is based on a, a Latin chant that was written over a thousand years ago. So that means millions of Christians have joined around these words to express their hope of God's coming. The God who will ransom us from bondage, from all the things that keep us bound. The day spring or the dawning of God's light that will drive away the darkness from every corner of the world and every corner of our hearts. The wisdom of God that will put everything to right eventually and in the meantime will guide us in this complex world. And finally, the desire of nations who will bring us peace. And I have to say, I've known this hymn for probably my whole life, and that last one kind of stumped me, desire of nations. And I thought maybe it was one of those names for Messiah that gets mentioned once in the Old Testament, and then someone makes it into a song, and so we know it, but nobody really knows what it means, kind of like... You are the lily of the valley and the bright and morning star and the, you know, all the, all the, the, the rose of Sharon, isn't that in there too? All those names for Christ. But I just didn't get desire of nations. But here's the thing. This hope that we heard about in the, in the Isaiah passage and that this hymn makes us gather our thoughts around was the hope of the Jewish people, of course. They were longing for someone to come empowered by the divine to rule justly and bring lasting peace. But the thing is that ancient texts outside of Israel also express this hope. So in the writings of the ancient Near East, what we call the Middle East, we see that they thought the most important responsibility of a king was to establish justice. And ancient Egyptian and Mesopotamian texts, and Mesopotamia, I had to look this up just to remember and get my thoughts clear about it. Mesopotamia is that whole fertile crescent. So what is now Iran, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, Israel, that whole place, that multicultural, multilingual place, they had texts describing kings who will come to power and reign with peace and justice and bring prosperity. In fact, in one uh, Mesopotamian king's description, it was this, the hungry are fed, 
The naked are clothed, the prisoners are set free. Sound familiar? The point is that people of all nations long for these same things. A righteous ruler who will bring peace and rule justly. They longed for somebody, the ancient Egyptians, ancient Mesopotamians, longed for somebody just like the people reading Isaiah longed for. He's the desire of the nations. The difference is, of course, other nations wanted a king that would do this. And the Israelites wanted a king, but they wanted something more. They wanted the Messiah to come. So, oh, come, desire of nations, and do those things. Bring your peace. Bring your justice. Do right decisions. Give vindication to the poor and the needy. That's the kind of longings the people of Israel had, and Egypt, and Mesopotamia, and we could probably assume people all over the world have wanted these things. And so do we, hopefully, unless we've given up. And I'm not going to try to be extra pious, because in recent years it has been very hard sometimes to hang on to hope. Incredible disregard for human flourishing in our society. Once again, even this week, attacking millions of Americans' access to health care, the suppression of wages. We could list all sorts of ways in which people are being crushed, let alone the hatefulness of political discourse. Have you ever noticed? that that old childhood jingle, some of you may not be familiar with it, but we have this phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones and names will never hurt me. Have you ever noticed that that's completely wrong? Actually, if you break a bone and you have it reset right, it may be stronger than ever because the way our bodies build scar tissue around breaks. But a hateful word, a racial slur, A derogatory comment of any kind can be a wound that a child carries forever into adulthood. Maybe wounds that we are carrying now into this sanctuary. We need the one who binds up the brokenhearted. The one who brings justice. Who vindicates those who have been pushed down. Wounded by words, diminished by discrimination. We need God to come and work some healing. Maybe just so we can even begin to hope again. Maybe we need healing just to get to the place where we can receive the love of God. So that we can really believe in the core of our beings that Jesus loves me. I remember uh, years ago, I was in school, and I was in a Christian school, and somebody said to me, you know, the song that we learned first in Sunday school, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, is the hardest thing that a Christian is ever called on to believe. That deep in our core, no matter what people have done to us, no matter what the church has done to us, no matter what stories we have told ourselves about ourselves, To be able to hear that God loves us deeply. God loves us all the way. And the ways that we've been wounded are those places that make it hard for us to hear the love of God and to retain Advent hope. 
the early church writers used to say the, the, our places of woundedness become the places of disordered desire. It's where we act a little wacko. It's those places where we are unable to love the other and unable to love the self. And when we can't love ourselves, it's mighty hard to believe that God loves us. When we can't forgive ourselves, it's mighty hard to believe that God forgives us. When we can't forgive other people, it's mighty hard for us to receive the love of God. So, come, desire of nations, come. Maybe especially in these hateful, polarized times, our hearts turn toward the one who brings righteousness and peace. Maybe in this Advent, more than any other, we say, come, desire of nations. We long for a leader who won't judge superficially. Isaiah says he will not judge simply by what he sees with his eyes or what he hears. He's not going to jump on first impressions. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. May it be so. And if we're longing for God to come and do these things, then we have to be open to joining in God, in God's work in this world. Um, I heard a, an interview this week with Lynn manuel uh, Miranda, in which he observed that sometimes waiting is a sign of entitlement. You know, you're just waiting for some good thing to be dropped on your lap. And this made me think about all this talk in Advent about waiting. We're waiting for the Messiah to come. We're waiting for God's power to be manifest in our crazy, dark world. We're on the edge of our seats, waiting with bated breath. And that's good. And some of us probably do need to stop and do some waiting in this hectic season. But if we long for and if we worship the God of righteousness and justice, we too have to be known for righteousness and justice. As Isaiah describes the ruler one who makes good decisions for the poor of the earth, so we have to care that good decisions are being made for the poor of the earth, the needy, the children, the hungry children in our country, the children in detention camps, the children falling through the cracks. At a personal level, maybe we have to remember to take time for people because sometimes our walking into people's lives is their advent. It is the presence of Christ enfleshed in their lives. So come, desire of nations. Come, desire of nations, bind all people in one heart and mind. In the Isaiah passage, verse 10 says, In that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. It's a, it's a picture of a flag and all the army gathering around the flag. Or to use a metaphor probably more accessible to most of our lives, it's like the captain of a team, sports team, right after they've won a victory and everybody is flocking around the captain and raising them up on their shoulders. That's what Jesus' coming is like. Or maybe it's like the conductor of a huge orchestra who's standing there in that moment before the downbeat, and all the eyes of the entire orchestra should be, all the eyes are on that conductor and on that baton just waiting 
There's unity in that common purpose and in the common focus and loyalty to that person. And I think having a common person can be really powerful. Like when churches stop competing for sheep and work with each other to do mission in their city. Or when families give up bickering and be good neighbors to someone near them in crisis. I think when we can't see past our own pettiness, when we can't join together in common purpose, it's a sign that we've allowed the narrow confines of our own lives to blind us to everything outside and to blind us to the fact that we're part of God's big narrative. The word made flesh is like a banner that rallies us to something bigger than ourselves. Henry Nouwen wrote this in a, in a little book called With Burning Hearts. Without the word that keeps lifting us up as God's chosen people, we remain or become small people stuck in the complaints that emerge in our daily struggle to survive. Without the word, we remain little people with little concerns who live little lives and die little deaths. So, we'll be much more likely to engage in a common purpose when we remember we're part of God's great drama, the great calling to be his people in this world that transcends us and therefore draws us together. There's a societal level too. Bind all peoples in one heart and mind. Truly a miracle would be needed. We all know that in this moment in this time of heightened tribalism in our country and the anxiety that we are being um, <laughs> fed and the, the fear that's being nurtured about people who are unlike us. But God isn't out of the miracle business yet. And I think it's in the accumulation of little miracles that God does miracles, right? It's in those random acts of kindness. You see those bumper stickers, do random acts of kindness. I think for Christians, it's not random. It's our program, right? I think of the stories during the hurricane in Houston last year where Latino folks who have been um, demeaned were helping out white folks <laughs> save their houses and, and save their lives and things like that. The examples of love of, across race lines in a congregation like this. The actresses in the Me Too movement raising money to pay legal fees for blue-collar women um, who have been assaulted. People reaching across lines of difference to say, we're all in this together. We sing desire of nations, bind all peoples in one heart and mind. We're saying, God, Teach us to love people from different tribes, different places in this society and in this world. Different political tribes. Admittedly, sometimes difficult. Different religious tribes. Different racial ethnic groups. Different genders. People from different classes. The differently abled people of different sexual orientations. Bind us, Lord, together by our common humanity. Bind us together in our common longing for love, our longing to be listened to, our longing for peace. In his book, um, Justice and Love, uh, 
Calvin professor Nick Waltersdorf talks about what he calls the inhibiting stories we tell about each other. And I think that's just a fancy way of saying stereotypes. But it's a good way because it makes us remember what stereotypes do. We tell ourselves stories that inhibit us from seeing the other as a full human being who stands side by side as a moral equivalent to us. Christians, of all people, should not be prone to inhibiting stories because the very foundation of what we know about what it means to be human we heard about in Genesis 1, in in the very first chapter of our sacred text. We are all made in the image of God. You think about the person that's hard enough, hardest to love in your life right now. Just say in your mind, that person is made in the image of God. It's humbling. And not only that, every person we meet is somebody for whom Christ died. Somebody God loves enough to send Jesus for. It's no wonder that the central ethic of the son of Jesse, of of Jesus, is love. Learning how to love God and learning how to love the other enough to lay down our lives for them. Or, maybe more difficult, learning to love them through a long lifetime together. I had a pastor one time say, here's the thing, when you're really having trouble loving somebody, Commit to pray for God to bless them. Pray every day. Pray every time you think of that person with a little uh, in your stomach. God, bless that person. We're asking in that kind of prayer for the blessing of the other and for God to change our hearts. You learn how to love somebody as you choose to enact love. Then the next line, bid envy, strife, and quarrels cease. Hmm. Can you actually imagine that? In this polarized era when insulting the other is the norm? Even envy. To try to live 24 hours of your life without envying anybody for anything. It'd be hard, wouldn't it? Why do we compare ourselves to other people all the time? And sometimes I think it's because we really do believe we're better than others. Sometimes I think we're doing it because we want to feel like we're better than others and we're afraid we're not. It's sort of the dynamic of cliques everywhere, of tribalism everywhere. Bruce Coburn, and this is, if you don't know him, I'm showing my age, but, you know, sort of a Christian contemporary guy in the 80s. He says, can it be so hard to love yourself without thinking someone else holds a lower card? Is it really that hard? Can we remember our belovedness to God and simply enjoy the giftedness of other people around us, even if they outshine us, rather than envying them or putting them down, thinking they hold a lower card? Sometimes, on the other hand, I think we compare ourselves to other people and we come out lower. We, we compare and we feel very negative about ourselves. I remember one time my father told me a story. He was an academic guy and he told me this story. He said, you know, this, the, the most accomplished two students I ever had, I had at the same time. And the guy who was a hair's breadth less successful than the top guy,
guy felt like a failure all the time. But he was probably the second most accomplished student that had ever walked through those doors. He wasted his entire education feeling bad about himself because he wasn't the top. Sometimes that's really demoralizing. We want to be the best. Sometimes we even are tempted to give up on the thing. Be, ah, somebody else could do it way better. 19th century poet said, Use the talents you possess, for the woods would be a very silent place if no birds sang except the best. Right? Envy can silence us when we should be singing. Paul tells us in Romans 12, don't compare yourselves to each other. That's not the thing. But in the light of who you are made by God and in light of how God has gifted you, judge yourself with sober judgment. Light of the world, shine your light into our murkiness and teach us who we are. I think envy obviously comes into play when we compare the stuff of other people's lives to our own stuff too. Person has an easier marriage. Person has more, you know, um, obedient kids. They have more Facebook friends. Their posts get more likes. They drive a new BMW while I have a 2002 Century Buick. They have nicer house, clothes, you name it. May the desire of nations come and deliver to us the miracle of contentment. Bid envy, strife, and quarrel cease. So strife. Once I heard a TV preacher say, you know, God wants you to have no stress in your relationships. You might be able to guess who I'm talking about. God wants you to have no stress in your relationships. Stress-free, which is laughable. Some of you are laughing. It is laughable in the here and now to imagine having relationships with other human beings that are stress-free. We can't even have relationships with our animals that are stress-free. I have a puppy. That's probably why that's on my mind. Without getting on each other's nerves, without bugging the other, without failing one another. But in the ultimate sense, that preacher is right. Someday, the desire of nations will wrap up all human history. We'll be washed clean of all the selfishness and the irksomeness, the narrow-mindedness, and we will, I believe, live stress-free, loving relationships. We'll be gathered around the one who comes for us. In the meantime, though, we long for the end of strife between people, between nations. We pray for it, we work for it, because we are called, too, to be the peacemakers. And quarrels. Bid envy, strife, and quarrels cease. I had a co-worker once who told me she hadn't spoken to her sister in six to eight years, and I said, oh, well, where does she live? Two blocks away. And I don't know what caused that breach, and I don't know what it would have taken to overcome it, but it was a very sad admission, right? Life is too short to allow our quarrels to define our lives. 
And there's so many great stories in Scripture that we don't have time to talk about, but so many moments of reconciliation and forgiveness. Bruce Coburn's song goes on, The life you've given is no use at all if you burn it up in hate. Life is short and precious, and hating others or quarreling with them in a persistent way Hating groups of people, hating people for what they've done to us is such a waste of human life, let alone the damage it does to us and the damage it does to other people. Desire of nations, fill the whole world with heaven's peace. And the images from Isaiah at, at, uh, that was read are very compelling. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard and the goat, the lion and the cow, the yearling. There's no violence a child can even stick his or her hand into the pit of snakes, which does give me nightmares. But it's a great idea. It, it's a, a metaphor of, of unbelievable safety. It's such a great image that you all painted it onto the side of your church, right? The wolf and the lamb can coexist. But it's not only safety. It's the protection of people's livelihood. It's security. Did you notice it's domesticated animals, the lamb, the goat, the cow, that will be safe from the wild predators. It's security for your children. Ultimately, this is a picture of everyone and everything being at home. The wolf will live with the lamb. The coming ruler will care about the safety of the vulnerable, will care about making us a home. This is something to look forward to, to long for, to pray for. Everyone to be safe. Everyone to have security. Everyone to have a home. And even as we look forward to the day when God brings this about in a final way, we long for this, we pray for this, we work for this in the here and now as God's representatives. The God who cares for these things. And I wonder what we can do as individuals and what we can do as the church to address the lack of safety in this society for many people, for victims of domestic violence, for mass shootings, for racial profiling, for all the ways in which people live anxious with a lack of safety. Or the places in the world where war ravages lives. Oh, peacemaker, come. What can we do as individuals and what can we do as the church about the lack of security? Food security, first of all, in a country where they say one-fifth of children go to bed hungry in the wealthiest nation on earth. The inadequate income of people who work three jobs and who can't make ends meet. The lack of security in relationships desire of nations come. What can we do as individuals, what can we do as the church about people who lack a home? Tens of thousands of children in this country live on the streets. Our veterans come home from our wars and live on the streets. The people with foreclosed homes, etc. Desire of nations fill the whole world with heaven's peace. Bring safety and security and prosperity and 
that sense of being at home. Peacemaker, come and teach us to be your peacemakers. As the St. Francis prayer says, Lord, make us an instrument of your peace. Why this peaceable kingdom? Isaiah says it's because the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. May we be mouthpieces for that peace. O come, desire of nations, bind all peoples in one heart and mind. Bid envy, strife, and quarrels cease. Fill the whole world with heaven's peace. And we will rejoice that Emmanuel has come to us. Amen.